Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. And now, from the University of Chicago Institute of Politics and CNN Audio, The Axe Files, with your host, David Axelrod. Several years ago, I had a great conversation right here on The Axe Files with Cecile Richards, who was then the president of Planned Parenthood. We spoke about her remarkable life and career as an activist, an advocate, and a leader. Cecile stepped down after a decade at the helm of Planned Parenthood a year later, But she didn't step back from the battle for progressive causes and equal rights, or from politics, where she continues to lead. We sat down again recently to catch up and to take stock of where we as a country are today. Here's that conversation. Cecile Richards, so good to see you. First of all, thank you for your stint this spring as a... uh, as a fellow at the Institute of Politics at the University of Chicago, you inspired a lot of a lot of young people, and it was great to have you there. I just thoroughly enjoyed it. I think there's anyone who's feeling a little bit discouraged about the world just needs to spend some time with young people, and particularly, you know, the students at Chicago obviously are, you know, like top of the top of the list. Uh, but they were fantastic. So thanks for the opportunity. That is the gift that they give. Yep. I, I told them, I was telling a group of them that today, the gift of hope, which is sometimes hard to come by in these times. So let us let us consider these times and see if we end up hopeful at the end of the discussion. We will. Um, but, you know, um, I was just thinking, as I was thinking about you, I was thinking about the fact that um, I arrived in Chicago at the University of Chicago as a student in 1972. It was the year the Equal Rights Amendment passed Congress. And um, I became a journalist while I was a student. And I started covering that, that battle in Illinois, which became sort of ground zero for the whole thing. In fact, I covered Phyllis Schlafly um, back in the day. <laughs> it must have been memorable. <laughs> it was memorable. It was memorable. Yep. Uh, but, um, um, and I'm wondering, next year's the 50th anniversary of the ERA passing never got ratified. Right. Tell me, this is kind of a big question to start with, but like, how do you look at the social progress of the last 50 years? Where where are we in the arc of history uh, from that moment when that that Equal Rights Amendment was thwarted? And of course, we'll get into where we are on reproductive uh, rights, which is, you know, we're at a critical juncture there, obviously. Right. Well, I, so it's, uh, as with most big topics, I think like this, it's probably, there's a duality. And I, that's what I would say that we have, you know, made enormous progress despite women not having equal rights in this country. I mean, women, you know, before the pandemic were actually more than half the wage earners in the country. Um, they have, now uh, become part of almost every possible um, professional 
career. We see women, you know, in sports, largely because of Title IX. We see uh, women, um, you know, doing things no one ever thought we could. Uh, and I feel like that's all happened despite having to fit into systems that really were never built for women to participate. And and that's where we get to politics, where I feel like despite all of that progress, it's happened with really very anemic political representation. And it's only been recently, and, and in many ways, I would say, David, after the 2016 election, when, of course, we just saw this explosion of women running for office, young women, uh, women with varied backgrounds saying, I'm not going to wait anymore. I'm not going to wait until it's my turn or I'm not going to wait until that guy retires. And that gives me hope that if we could begin to get equal political representation, that we can make the kind of systemic change that would allow women to really be, really live equal lives. Um, it's just, it's, and, you know, I know we'll talk about the all, the, you know, the current debate about what is infrastructure, for example, in this country, but, it, you know, we basically, women have participated in this economy with, uh, with no childcare plan in the country, you know, no family leave uh, plan in the country, still not equal pay, and yet women have just persevered and continued on. So uh, I, I hope that as we get um, more equal representation, not of course only in Congress, which is important, but we look down the, you know, look at state legislatures and governors, once women actually have equal political representation, we can make the kind of systemic change that we so desperately need. We should point out that the things that you're talking about, about child care and family leave and so on, those are the norm almost everywhere else. Right, exactly. I mean, you know, it's not like this is some sort of, um, you know, vast overreach uh, here. I mean, we are well be behind the rest of the world, uh, certainly the, the rest of the industrialized world um, in this regard. Uh, and it, it is kind of astonishing that we're, we still have these debates. It's really amazing. And I mean, the other thing that, as I'm sure you know, is having actually affordable child care is really popular with men, too. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, these all these issues that have been relegated to as women's issues are, in fact, uh, popular by of all genders. And that's true with equal pay. I mean, one of the things, you know, why we can't make progress on equal pay is really sort of remarkable because, um, you know, men like equal pay, too. They like their wives to be paid a, a fair wage. They want their daughters, their mothers, you name it. So, but I remember... Um, if I can tell you really quickly, just right after sure. the 20, after, I don't know, if, you know, 2018, of course, was a watershed year for women going to Congress. And I remember so clearly a meeting, it was in a sort of like, I think it was the basement maybe of the DNC or some, you know, cardboard tables and or, or like card tables and, you know, bad takeout Mexican <laughs> yes. food and, yes. you know, not a glamorous setting, but it was, it was almost like, it was the first meeting of the women's caucus, Democratic women's caucus, with all these, you know, long timers, but also brand new young women. And I remember it. I'll, I'll just name her because she, I'm sure she would repeat it today. Uh, Congresswoman Lois Frankel saying, you know, we all the things we care about, child care, you know, um, family leave, uh, sick leave, uh, equal pay. These are things that our male colleagues care about, too. But somehow when it comes to the appropriating time, we're always paying for roads and bridges and not those kinds of things. So it's just sort of ironic that here we are um, really having the exact same debate today. But I feel like because of the really the enormous leadership 
uh, of women in Congress and, frankly, the leadership of this administration, these are issues that now are on the front burner. Yeah. Well, in fairness, we're not sure how far roads and bridges are going to go either right now. <laughs> That's true. So, uh, yes. No, I mean, I was going to ask about you about this uh, later, but, um, you know, we're, we're sort of at a, a crossroads here policy-wise in the debate in Washington, and the president's been trying mightily to strike a deal with the Republicans on infrastructure. I assume he'll move, try and move forward uh, on some of the other elements of his plan that go more to the social compact and social safety net uh, with budget reconciliation. But it's not clear as we sit here today that any of that's going to happen. Right. No, it's, it's incredible. But look, David, you, I mean, you experienced this last time around when the sort of the stated goal of the Republicans in the United States Senate was to make sure that President Obama didn't have a second term, that President Obama had no successes. And I, it's the same to me, it's the exact same sort of mentality, which is this isn't about what, what do your constituents need and what, what, do, what do people need from government? But how do we how do we get power back um, for the Republican Party? It's enormously discouraging because, of course, this is this is a different time where we've just gotten through a pandemic, still not on the completely on the other side of it. We've seen enormous disruption in our economy, and the thought that the, really, frankly, the entire Republican Party that voted against the um, you know the president's important um, and important legislation to, you know, get economic stimulus to people in this country, that they all voted against it. Um, I don't know. It It's the, that partisanship is enormously discouraging. Well, you know, I want to I want to pursue this because I'm wondering what you I mean. You, you, you're an extraordinary. You're one of the things I like about you is that you're uh, both uh, very pragmatic and very idealistic and um, and the best people in public life or the people with whom those two things live side by side, uh, because that's how you get things done. But, you know, uh, I, I had the feeling the night that the Democrats won the two Georgia races, that it was an enormous, uh, it was an enormous uh, win for, for Biden, uh, but also an enormous burden because we, you know, we went through this, as you pointed out, uh, 10 years ago, you know, and just because people have D's next to their name doesn't mean you're going to get consensus on every goal. And you do have conservative and moderate Democrats in that Senate caucus. I mean, Manchin gets a lot of attention, but he's not the only one. Right. Uh, and now, you know, the House is, the margin in the House is not terribly large. So you've got the same kinds of debates. Uh, they're not quite as pronounced or dramatic, but they're there. Um, and and yet you see, you know, I, I and I understand the frustration, but you see uh, progressive uh, folks saying, well, let's, you know, let's just go it alone. Let's just, you know, uh, screw the Republicans. Let's just go it alone. Well, how do you go it alone if you don't have 50 votes? Yes, that's... <laughs> I agree. And I, I read the same articles this weekend that you did. And I, I understand the frustration of and but it's right. Uh, I mean, it goes back to Hamilton. You know, you don't have the votes. It's like that. And if I could just as an aside, it's one of the reasons why I think Speaker Pelosi is such an effective leader is 
she knows how to count and right. she understands that you have to have uh you know even even when she was in the minority and understood that you know her she could deliver enough votes to to um help pass anything in the house uh, but that's right that's that's our problem now and of course it puts as you know it means that the midterm elections we we've got to go against the trend in in the midterms we've got to hold the senate the history yeah. is that the governing party loses seats and now you have redistricting where republicans exactly. uh, are likely on the natch to pick up five to ten seats so democrats actually start off behind in this fight uh, i want to talk to you a little bit more about that uh, later but you know just on this point mm-hmm. you know I re- all of this re- made, made me recall speaking to the Senate Democratic Caucus in the winter of 2010 after we had lost the Ted Kennedy seat in Massachusetts. So now we don't have 60 votes in the Senate. Uh, And uh, the House hated the Affordable Care Act bill. You'll remember that the Senate passed because they felt it wasn't progressive enough, not generous enough, and its benefits didn't have a public option. And they were hell-bent on not voting for the Senate bill. And Pelosi and Obama and Reid sort of went underground trying to figure out the approach forward and to work one by one to get the votes. And I went to a Senate caucus meeting, and Al Franken, who's a friend of mine, uh, stood up, and he, in a very dramatic way, I wrote my book that I could see why he was a comic actor, not a dramatic actor, but in a very a dramatic flourish said, I'm just livid. I'm sitting here doing a slow burn. The president was here this morning and you're here this afternoon and you're not telling us how we're going to get this done. And he said, I want to know, why don't you just tell the House to pass the Senate bill? And I'm like, and I'm looking at Harry Reid, who's looking at his shoes because he knows what's going on, but he needs to let his members vent. And I just said, you know, Senator, if you have a list in your pocket of 218 votes for the Senate bill, you should walk across the rotunda and give it to the speaker because I don't think she has that list yet. Uh, And I'm pretty sure if she did, we'd be able to move this thing forward. And that's sort of where it is now. So today I was on television commenting about Manchin and I called him a moderate and that upset someone who tweeted, why do you keep calling him a moderate? He's not a moderate. He's a conservative and you shouldn't and I said, you know, he he cast the deciding vote for the American Rescue Act. And if you're going to pass the rest of the pieces of Biden's agenda through budget reconciliation, it's going to be with Manchin's vote, too. Yeah, you're going to need him. I think that's right. I mean, and I'm really obviously I as I I think everyone is so, so distraught over what's happening to voting rights in this country and that it's not even happening in a like a sneaky way or a, oh, we're just, it is in a blatant power grabbing kind of way. I'm sorry that Senator Manchin doesn't, you know, that, that that's, I, 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 I was sorry that, that he's come down where he yeah. has, but you're right. He's a critical vote for every single thing we're going to get passed for the next two years. And I wondered, Cecile, uh, whether the fact that he wrote that piece about the, um, about the uh, For the People Act, the act you're talking about, Senate right. 1. He wrote his piece, not in the Washington Post or the New York Times, but in his hometown paper. And I wondered whether he was sort of signifying to his voters, I'm not going over the hill. But David, let's no, be no, no, honest. No, no, I no, mean, C- okay, Cecile, okay. I'm, not def- I'm not defending. I'm just <laughs> analyzing, okay? I'm not. Right. No, I, I hear you. I thought the same thing. But I'm like, tell me a West Virginia voter that is 
that's that that's how they're going to decide on how they vote on on uh, on uh, a Senate race. But anyway, I of course. But I wonder whether he was buying himself a little bit of room so that when he does have to vote for reconciliation, you know, he yeah. can say, yeah, you know what? I got a lot of le- people on the left pissed off at me. He also he did leave room for passing the uh, John Lewis Act, which would you know put teeth back into the Voting Rights Act, which would be important. I still don't know how you get ten votes, Republican right. votes for that, and that that continues uh, continues to be the issue. We'll get back at the end to uh, the the midterms and what you're doing now. But I can't have you as the f- the former head of of Planned Parenthood and not ask you about reproductive rights and the turn that this has taken. We've now seen this Mississippi bill, which uh, would uh, significantly limit a woman's right to choose now before the Supreme Court. And you've got a Supreme Court that doesn't look like the Supreme Courts we've seen for the last 50 years. It's, it's also been almost 50 years since Roe versus Wade was was enacted. So tell me what the state of play is and how concerned are you and how you think that, how do you think this is going to play out? Obviously, very disturbing. Um, when you look at right now, of course, we probably on a, on the issue of abortion and probably on a lot of other issues, we might have a six-three deficit on the on the Supreme Court, and that probably the most important thing that happened under the Trump administration is that three in ten federal judges now sitting judges uh, were appointed by by uh, Donald Trump. Uh, so this is on a whole host of issues. I think we are looking into a long long, tough time. This is really bad because the Supreme Court didn't have to take this case, the Mississippi case. Uh, it had already was already um, was not uh, in, in effect. So they have now, I think this is the first um, pre-viability abortion case that the Supreme Court has taken since Roe. And that means that they're going to now ban abortions, right? Um, uh, they, I mean, you essentially could allow states, as many states already have tried, to ban abortions um, pre-viability, um, uh, you know, Roe really said it was that was a woman's decision, a pregnant person's decision. Uh, we now have, and this is only the this is just the tip of the iceberg, David, because if it essentially we're saying to states, you can make these, you can make whatever decision. The number of states who have laws that are on the books but are not enforceable uh, because they weren't constitutional under Roe is huge and. My, my state of the home state of Texas, Mississippi is very upsetting. But I mean, for your listeners, you know, the state of Texas is now, which I was kind of at the point where I thought there was really nothing more they could pass in Texas to limit abortion because they've done so much. They've now passed a bill that is due to go into effect um, on September 1st, I believe, that essentially would ban any abortion after about six weeks is as soon as a heartbeat is detected, which is, and as we know, many women don't even know they're pregnant at that point. But it's not only that it is and eliminates almost all um, abortions, it also allows any anybody, anybody to right. um, sue, uh, to bring suit against someone, not only a person who would have an abortion or a physician that provided it, but anyone who aided or abetted that that woman to um, receive an abortion, so that could be her Uber driver, it could be um, the volunteer at the clinic, it could be um, really, I mean, it's who knows, and and it's huge. And I assume that that I assume that that was a, a some sort of 
work around to try and yes. uh, put the so you get the onus off of government. Correct. And allow, allow just sort of vigilante justice in a way. And so it's it's yes, I think I mean, look, we could get into all the details of these cases, which I have. I'm happy to. But I think what we're really looking into is the possibility of women in this country losing a right they've had now for, as you say, nearly 50 years. And I also I don't know. And, you know, I know we're going to talk about the midterms, but I also believe the Republican Party has now put into the mix here an issue that I most Americans think is a settled issue. And uh, I think it it has the potential because the Mississippi case will be decided before the midterms. Uh, I think it has the potential to further inflame women in this country who've become an enormously important political force. And but that's the work we have to that's the work we have to do is to let women know what's coming. That was actually my reaction when I saw that they had taken the case and that they would be ruling next June, you know, I, it, it goes through the hacky filter in my head. And, you know, my first thought was, man, this is going to be a real, this could be a real problem for Republicans, particularly in some of these suburban districts that where they're already going to be freighted with Donald Trump. I think that could be uh, really problematical for them, but, but there are obviously larger, uh, there are larger issues at stake when you say women would lose that right, um, likely women would lose that right in states where that right was taken away, right? So in the state of New York, you're, you you know. Yes, it would be like states where women have rights and states where they where they don't. And of course, as you know, too, it's not, you could look at the map of the country. It's the states that have already the least access to health care, you know, lowest wages, all the issues that already affect women, women with low incomes, women of color, they also live in the states where they will no longer be able to get, you know, assuming that the Supreme Court rules is, as we might anticipate, they'll no longer to be able to even make their own decisions about having kids or not. And, and states that are, that are, that still provide abortion access and will become the kind of the safe haven. But look, I know I, I live in Texas, you know, I've lived in Texas for years. It's a gigantic state. It's it's not like easy for a woman who works at Walmart um, or who lives in rural East Texas to get to New York City or to get to Chicago. And so disproportionately, this is going to fall on women who already have the least access to care. It's it's brutal. It's cruel. Uh, I also but as you say, I think it's going to be a wake up call. Given the composition of the court now with Justice Barrett added, who's been very clear on her views on these issues and was was advanced in in some ways by the the uh, uh, the movement to ban uh, abortion is is uh, do you, I mean, do you have any doubt about the outcome of this? Well, I don't I never I mean listen, you never give up a fight like this. This is so important. And I think what has to happen, uh, well, one is obviously if you believe in judicial precedent, which of course they all have said they they do, then you couldn't possibly um, rule um, in favor of the Mississippi ban. Uh, But in addition, it is critical in these next few months, now that the Mississippi case has been taken, that the American people 
have to be educated about what is at stake. And again, this is coming at a time, as you, you, know, as you said, like there are enormous um, challenges that families are facing, that women are facing economically. And so it's going to be even more important to be able to break through and say, you also need to be a pay, paying attention to this um, and speaking up about it. Because I don't, you know, in my experience, the Supreme Court is also uh, aware of public opinion. I mean, yeah. who knows if this court will be? Yeah, well, Justice Roberts certainly has shown himself to be sensitive to that. The the fact is, he's not in a swing vote position anymore. That's right. Uh, on on, no. on these questions, before we leave this, um, I just want, and I don't want to get into the weeds, but I I, I want to understand. I want, and I want folks who are listening to understand this issue of fetal heart heartbeat versus viability. I think, you know, Planned Parenthood was involved in a suit back in the 90s, in the early 90s, uh, uh, in which the court um, introduced this notion of um, fetal heartbeat. Talk about the, talk about the, um, the rationale of these bills versus viability. I mean, the only rationale is emotional and political. It's not medical uh i mean uh, as you know so a heartbeat can be detected at six weeks it has and and a, and doctors will tell you um i've spent a lot of time with OBGYNs over my years at planned parenthood that viability isn't a number right it is something that actually medical medical experts have to decide in in pregnancies but essentially what the what the right wing is doing here is uh, trying to sort of equate a heartbeat um, yes with uh, something that really is kind of unrelated and these are look all kinds of things you know all kinds of things happen in pregnancies this is why it's so important that women pregnant people their physicians are able to give the best medical advice of, of what should happen um, in a pregnancy and that they should be able to make those their decisions themselves. And so I think this effort by the right is is totally emotional. I actually it's hugely unpopular too, which is, that's the other thing we haven't even talked about is it's not like these bills are coming forward because there is now this overwhelming sentiment in this country that we need to ban abortion. It's actually just the opposite. In fact, under Donald Trump, under the last four years, you know, support for abortion rights actually increased. Um, it's now somewhere between 60 and 70 percent, probably depends on, you know, what question you ask or how you poll. Uh, so this is actually happening not because it's a majoritarian issue, uh, but simply because they have the political um, ability to do it. And, and Again, getting back to your original point, essentially, I, I think it's it is um, it is going to it is going to wake up a sleeping giant on this issue that I don't think they had have planned for. We're going to take a short break, and we'll be right back with more of the Axe Files. And now back to the show. I think maybe we talked briefly about this the last time we were together here on this podcast. But, you know, it strikes me that, and and I am this way, I find this to be a very complex issue. I fundamentally believe that women should have the right to choose 
and to make that decision in consultation with their their doctors and their families or whoever they want to consult with. But it is an emotionally hard issue. I mean, and now I think what's missed is it's an emotionally hard issue for the woman who's making the decision. It's a very personal decision. Yeah. The guy idea that people are making casual decisions is is doesn't comport with the reality of it. But, you know, I think most Americans, you know, Bill Clinton used to do this, the safe, legal and rare litany. That probably, and you look at the polling, there is that sort of the middle ground there. People don't necessarily, they're not pro-abortion, they're pro-choice. Can I, can I say something about that? Yeah, and I, I want you to say whatever you yeah. want. You put me in yeah, my place. Yeah, because I think it's actually, I, I mean, one of the things that I, I do know is that people don't believe this is a political issue and they don't like being labeled. And and I, you know, whether it's pro-choice, pro-life, whatever, yes. all of that, uh, because because for the very reason you said, and that is they believe this is a really personal issue and people have all kinds of feelings about it. But what the overwhelming majority of people feel in this country is it's such a personal and for some emotional, as you said, you know, use other words to describe it, decision that it shouldn't be made by government and politicians. And people do trust women to make decisions, even if they're hard decisions. Uh, And I think that's actually what I learned um, you know, over the many years of Planned Parenthood is respecting that women will make the best decision that they can for themselves. And what we need to do is provide them the support they need and the health care that they need um, to make those decisions is what basically people want. Now, there are some people who just don't want any person to ever have an abortion for whatever reason, and that's sort of the Texas legislature. Um, but that is not, that is, that is a small minority of people and, um, powerful minority of people, but oh yeah, well, on a whole lot of other things. I mean, I don't think there's a support in this country for what they're doing on voting rights or what they're doing to transgender kids. I mean, there's this, it's not because these are majoritarian issues. I mean, that's, what's depressing to me, David, and it's kind of getting back to what you were saying about what's happening when you can't even pass a rescue plan in this country that is for everybody. It's not a partisan rescue plan. It's providing economic support to everyone virtually in this country, and you can't get a single Republican vote for it. That means that people are not voting their constituencies, and they're not they're not voting what for what what people sent them to Washington or in in the case of Texas to Austin to do. Yeah. So I want to ask you about Texas. You still you may be sitting in Manhattan, but you still have Texas in your voice. You're mm-hmm. still you're still All my family's there. Yep. Qualified observer of Texas. What the hell is happening <laughs> in Texas? Explain to me, because you have a state that in some ways is, you know, you have these large maybe it's a microcosm of the country in some ways, but you have these large metropolitan pockets of blue, areas that are becoming more uh, progressive, more uh, democratic. Um, And yet, um, you know, and yet you have what's going on in your state legislature. Explain the dynamic to me, because I I do think there is something to be learned from it. No, and I and it's it's interesting that you say it's sort of a little microcosm, because in some ways I I felt that over these last four years, seeing what's happening in the politics, because, yes, now in Texas, Every major urban area is overwhelmingly Democratic. Houston, Dallas, Fort Worth, Austin, um, and San Antonio. And 
that and yet the rural the rural counties um which are really important uh uh are becoming increasingly republican there's no democratic representation and you know remember beto o'rourke's famous run uh for the united states senate went to every single one of those counties and really didn't didn't move the needle and so Democrats have to figure out a way to compete in the rural areas and lose less badly, as I think James Carville would say, and, uh, in, in, order to, in order to win the state. Um, Democrats are much more competitive in the su suburbs than they ever were before. And so even though we haven't won a statewide race, every year it's getting a little bit closer. Um, I think this last election showed that attention needs to be paid to some traditional areas of that, that were really democratic, um, uh, overwhelmingly democratic, like the Rio Grande Valley, uh, but it is moving in a, in a democratic direction. However, the state legislature, as well as our congressional delegation, does not even come close to representing the state. We have the most gerrymandered state and have forever. Uh, and it's fixing to get worse. As and we will say. again, yeah. Yeah, no. And so, it, so you have this, I, to me, it just seems like this last gasp, although I keep saying that each legislative session, and this has actually been, I think, the worst legislative session that anyone that I know of in Austin can remember, this sort of last gasp for power and control uh, uh, that is that is eventually going to have to end. Um, but, but you're right. I'm, I have been horrified at what the Texas legislature has done. And I think, but also you see that, you know, you're seeing the Republican primary uh, shaping up to be, you know, a contest between, you know, bad and worse. And I think a lot of these, a lot of what was going on there was political posturing for those races. Your mom was, yep. Ann Richards, was the last Democratic governor of Texas, a woman who who uh, got elected governor of Texas. What first of all, what would she say if she were to return today? And and what was obviously the country has changed, our politics have changed, but what would she say about this uh, task of getting rural voters? More, at least some of them back, uh, and how to address these rural voters? Because I actually think there's a problem that as the Democratic Party becomes more of a metropolitan, college-educated uh, kind of elite party, um, there is a—and this is James's point, Carvel as well—there is a kind of disconnect with people who work with their hands, people who work with their backs, people who farm, people who ranch. Uh, you know, there's just, there's just this big gulf, cultural gulf, and communications gulf. So what what was your mom's secret and um and what 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 do Democrats how do Democrats re-educate themselves? Well, okay, a hugely complicated question, but just a, a couple of things. One is um mom was that. She came from rural Texas. She had a big white bouffant hairdo. She yes. could walk into any diner in the in the uh, state and be at home. And so she just had that advantage. And she really believed that the Democratic Party, uh, this is not to throw shade on anybody, it's just that we, we, uh, we don't actually, well, one, sometimes we don't listen to people, but two, we talk to people in, 
in ways that they completely don't understand. And she used to say, in fact, I remember after she was governor of Texas, the party used to, the Democratic Party used to invite her to come teach people how to talk to folk. And she would, <laughs> and, and, and kind of her bellwether is, look, if my mama back in Waco can't understand what you're saying, you're not communicating. And so she did, I think, have some of that core understanding. And look, I see it today. We just, we love to talk about a lot of policies and a list of stuff. And we really miss talking to people in their core. Um, and then the last thing I'd say to, to be fair to the Democratic Party, mom came, mom got into office when there still was a Democratic Party um, across the state of Texas, where county judges and county commissioners in these rural areas, they may have been conservative, but they were Democrats and there was loyalty to the Democratic Party. And we've lost a ton of that. But I, and then the last thing I'll say is like, you know, I'm working now with, um, actually with James Carville some and, and with American Bridge, because they really did look at this last time. It's like a rural, how do we make sure that we're in conversation with rural voters? And, and I think they had a lot of success last election, but partly it is that rural voters, you know, they don't listen to the same news sources. I mean, partly it is what you're saying, but partly it is where you're saying yeah. it. And I just think it's like, you know, look, I'm sure you look at this all the time. Um, they're not, they're listening to the weather. They're listening to what's, you know, well, that weather and traffic. <laughs> and if we aren't figuring out how to break through, then, um, they're, they're not hearing us. Um, no, that's a huge problem and a huge difference. The siloing of media yeah. is such that it's very hard to break into the conversation and, you know, facts become fungible. And I mean, how is it that Sure. The vast, you know, that that the majority of Republicans think the last election was um, was fraudulent when there's no evidence to support that. And well, one other thing, too, and is that back in the day and when, when mom was elected too, every small town had a newspaper. Yeah. And people read the small town newspaper and like folks like me who was like, you know, I, I like had the B markets and we'd drive around, you know, from these little town to little town and. You'd go see the editor and you'd get your picture in the paper and you'd talk about things. That doesn't largely does not exist anymore. Yeah. So and it's which is really a shame too, because I mean that's obviously where some of the most incredible reporting and people came up through the ranks, you know, working at small town papers. That is true, and it is a disaster for democracy, not just yes. for the reason you said, but because these small town papers also actually covered their communities. That's right. And so, uh, you know, people and people have lost a great deal there. Just to, and you know, James calls it faculty lounge talk, <laughs> but uh, which is which is he's so right about. But uh, it's more than that. I think it's not just about the way things are said, but there is a a whiff of kind of oblivious moralizing sometimes like and i've said this before mm -hmm. and i apologize to listeners of the podcast who hear me rant about this often but uh you know i feel as strongly about anybody uh, anybody as anybody about climate change and certainly people in texas should feel strongly about it given what they've been subjected to in terms of storms uh, and and you know catastrophic weather situations but um i also know that you know, if you've made a good middle class living extracting energy from the ground and that's and gen for generations that losing that job is an existential potential existential crisis, too. We don't you know, I, I don't hear Democrats, you know, Joe Biden actually does, by the way, he, he has more of a sense of empathy and respect for people who 
do those jobs. Uh, but there is too much of an attitude of this is your moral responsibility and you're going to, we'll, we'll help you. You can install solar panels. And, you know, the question back is, well, am I going to make doing that what I make now? And that is a damn good question. And we, we ought to have that, uh, that discussion, you know, the, the whole mask and more than the mask, but the closing of businesses and so on. We had to do what we did and we should have done it sooner. Um, uh, to uh, to try and and prevent the deaths we had during the the virus, but but for these small business people who had to close down, this was a dramatically bad development. Now the government intervened to try and help them and so on. But I mean, w- empathy is a really important quality. Tr- trying to understand how other people live and and what their experience are is an important quality. Respecting people, even if they don't sit in front of a com- computer screen to make a, a, their living is a really important thing. I think the Democratic Party has a lot to learn there or relearn. Right. No, it's I couldn't agree more. And particularly when we come off as, you know, privileged as we are. Um, but un- an understanding, yeah, that folks are... Um, they have to make hard choices about how to support their family in a wildly disrupted economy way before the pandemic, right? I mean, whole industries are not going to exist anymore. And that is, that is frightening for people. Um, I, not to get political again, but this is one of the things, one of the things I've been really interested in is looking at what people think of uh, President Biden, particularly because I think a lot of you know, when we know from research, people voted for Donald Trump because he somehow seemed like he understood what they were going through, or he appealed to sort of the, he um, harangued on, you know, sort of uh, the disruption in the world as, as something, uh, and I think took, you know, made the worst of everything. I was fascinated because we just got, a, we just did research what women are feeling. And because I think they're such a critical political force in this country. Um, and Overwhelmingly, the most the most uh, the thing they associated most with Joe Biden wasn't any particular policy, but was that he understood people like them and their families. Yeah, which we is have so to important. pay attention to that. It's so important. It's, yeah. it's and because as we know, people don't make rational decisions about voting. Uh, they make decisions about who they feel like is on their side. And and I, I just think President Biden has done always probably, but particularly as president now has just a spectacular job of, of, you know, of, of demonstrating empathy. I should say just parenthetically, I, I did a podcast last week with uh, Jacinda Ardern, the prime minister of New Zealand. And we were talking about the pressures on democracies. And she, she gave just this wonderful answer about that, that, you know, that, you, you know, leaders have choices and the easy choice is to tell people that basically she didn't say it this way. She was much more elegant than this, but that they're getting screwed and they should be angry and pointing a finger at people for that. She said the hard, harder path is actually to try and be candid with people about the challenges and to try and solve them. Uh, and you know, she was she's really really a spectacular um, example. By the way, she's been amazing, right? 
What a, what a great thing to have her on. Yeah, one, one of the world's great and most impressive leaders. We're going to take a short break, and we'll be right back with more of the Axe Files. And now, back to the show. Just returning to Texas for a second, one thing that was striking about the election, and I think surprised people, was that Trump did pretty well in South Texas uh, among Hispanic uh, voters. And um, there, too, I think that there is a misunderstanding, uh, which, you know, there, there is this assumption among um, uh Democratic Party elites that uh, all minority voters share the same experience, have the same worldview. That that's not the case. These voters are pretty conservative down there, are they not? Yes, and they and uh, and also you so you're so right. And again, there's been so much I think interesting research done and conversation about this, which is. But a lot of the things that were you know became issues, and I think the Republicans really leaned into not only that, you know, a lot of folks down there work in oil and gas and, you know, there was, they were getting messages that they were going to lose their jobs. Also, a lot of folks work in law enforcement. A lot of folks work in border patrol. That, that is, uh, those are huge employers down there. And so I, again, I don't mean the democratic party should have taken a different position on anything they did, but we needed to be in conversation. And also as, as we know, uh, I mean, Latino voters in this country are not a monolith. They come from all over. And you are now seeing a whole generational change in the Rio Grande Valley um, that I think is, 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 is exciting and, uh, but, but needs attention. Um, and, and I do think, you know, look, you can't, you can't take anyone for granted. I will say, though, if I could just to put a kind of a, I, I'm doing an event actually this week for a young woman became county judge uh, of Harris County. Lena yeah, she's Hidalgo. very impressive. Very impressive. incredible, yeah. incredible. And, uh, and I think she also is a good example of a whole new generation of, of Latina leadership. Uh, we elected the first two Latinas, of course, to Congress uh, in 2018, Sylvia Garcia and Veronica Escobar, both of whom actually I had Veronica um, come to to class at the IOP. Yes, I really heard about that. Yes. Just outstanding. And so I do think too, uh, investing in a whole new um, whole new generation of leaders is one thing that that the party needs to do. And I think, uh, I, I hope will do. Honestly, Cecile, I think that given the, uh, the attitudes of younger Americans and the demographic changes that uh, continue in the country, that the long-term for the Democratic Party is 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 brighter than the midterm. That this next decade is going to be a, a challenging decade, uh, and you know uh, we'll see what happens in these in these uh, in these elections in two thousand and twenty two. As you said, Democrats are bucking the the trend there, and redistricting um, is tough. And there's no you know we you know President Biden says he's going to run in twenty twenty four. Uh, we'll 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 see if he can. You know, mm-hmm. uh, uh, I'm sure if he can, I think there'll be a lot of enthusiasm among Democrats for him to do that. But it, you know, it's not that's not a guarantee. And 
Right. We don't know what this. So, you know, you, you, you could conceivably have a Republican president in 2025. Uh, you don't know. So right. um, uh, the longer term, I think, is brighter for Democrats than the uh, than the intervening term. There's the bigger question of governing a country uh, that is so uh, divided. And, uh, you know, you, if you're in a sort of zero sum game where one side has to conquer the other. Um, that's that's an unhealthy environment, and especially given the way we elect, you know, the red states may be depopulated. They're still going to elect two senators. They're that's still right. going to, you know. So I mean, you know, there there are there needs to be a path. So tell me about your role at American Bridge. First of all, tell people about what American Bridge is. And I know you're the co-chair now. I think you probably replaced Jennifer Granholm, who went on to uh, join the cabinet. So I know no one can no one can replace Jennifer Granholm. <laughs> but yes, I'm I'm sitting. I'm trying to keep her seat warm there. Uh, <laughs> yes, with uh, working with Governor Deval Patrick from Massachusetts. And look, we are very focused on right now. American Bridge is focused on the midterm elections and particularly what's happening with women voters, uh, and to make sure that we're in conversation. I. I personally feel we have never had more good news to talk to women about at any time in my political history it, that that this administration uh, has is raising issues that women have wanted government to address for so many years, many of which we've already talked about, uh, is is serious about talking about practical solutions to the problems that women face, getting back into the economy, getting their kids back in school, getting people vaccinated so they can actually see their parents or their grandchildren or whatever. And that to me is having that conversation and and making sure that women understand that that was because of Joe Biden and that was because of a Democratic Congress, that, that we just can't overstate how important it is to like make that make that case. Because going back to your point earlier, which I just I wanted to chime in on this whole like what's you know like immediate future, long term future, mm-hmm. the Republican Party to me is just is operating on a deficit plan, which is they are not expanding their universe. They are actually you know, when you look at the way the country is growing, um, young you know young diverse, more women involved, more LGBTQ folks involved. Uh, they are shrinking into this little pod of sort of right-wing extremism and, and, and frankly, still following Donald Trump. So to me, in a backwards way, that gives me hope for the future because I actually think the Democratic Party is not playing a zero-sum game. I actually think the Democratic Party is trying to figure out, sorry for the, our, um, my ambulance <laughs> in the background. I think the Democratic Party is trying to figure out how do we actually govern and, and redeem government in the eyes of the American people. And I think they're doing a spectacular job of that. The challenge for the Republicans is they're so consumed by how to dominate their own primaries. Correct. That they are uh, limited in their ability, their ability to expand. And I've asked you this before. You, partly through the genes and partly through experience, you're like a first-class communicator. You're a great political actor in your own right, even though you're not, you haven't run for office. Has that horse left the barn? I mean, are you, I guess that, I mean, I mean, you, you, the I last time we spoke, you said you're a Texan in, in Manhattan. And yeah. so that probably <laughs> great... disqualifies you in both places, but. 
Oh, you know, I don't, I don't know if that's true. It's funny. I always thought my mother should have, if she'd run for governor of New York, she would have been like, that would have been. <laughs> that's been true. That's probably true. Fantastic. Yes. Um, so yeah, she just had the, she just wasn't where she was. Uh, I don't know. You know, I just, I guess I've learned enough and particularly um, seeing what women are doing now, like you should just never say never, never say you won't do something because who knows what's going to happen. But I I don't have any, I don't have any plans right now. I am, I mean, I'm excited to do things for all these young women who are running. I, I've just been blown away by, again, not just the women in Congress, but um, in this, at the state level and they're taking on tough, they're taking on tough battles and they aren't shying away. So for now, that seems good. Yeah, I should say Republicans obviously took a cue from what they saw because where they did make some pickups in 2020, it was because they ran women and they ran a more diverse uh, slate of candidates than they had uh, in the past. Um, So, you know, you're right. I was really careless because I, I shouldn't. The truth is, if you ran, you would be you would you would be a strong candidate in the state of uh, of New York, not just your mother, but you. Um, and I should ask you uh, about the the governor there and what your sense of that for, as a as a feminist, as a leader in the women's community. How have you processed what's going on with him? And do you anticipate that he he will have a challenge in two thousand and twenty two, Governor Cuomo? Well, if if he's going to run again, I. Yes, I assume he'll have a challenge. Uh, and I have been, you know, I respect a lot of good things he's done. I think it's, I think it's time for him to do something else. And I, I think it is discouraging for women. I mean, we could talk about Governor Cuomo. We could talk about, you know, there are other, other elected officials we could talk about. Um, I think I have, have been discouraged at how, um, how, quick we are to um, judge the women. And it's very hard to come forward on issues of sexual assault, sexual harassment. Um, and it's part of a life. I mean, it's part of all of our lives. We all live through this. And so um, I- Is that, uh, let me ask yeah. you, let, let me just ask you plainly, is that something that you would consider running for that office? I don't know. It's a great job. Yeah, no kidding. Yeah. Hard I job. Mean, really, hard, hard job. job. But you've had hard jobs before. Yeah, well, like her jobs no but this is not this was not all set up for an announcement here for a run for governor of new york i know but i thought jesus what better place (laughs) boy wow what a place to what about place to break the news yeah no i mean i I, right now i'm like yeah i'm pretty focused right now on getting through um getting getting through this this period of setting up um a lot of women i'm helping right now but i don't know we'll we'll see what happens in new york that's Very, a terrible answer. You can just erase all of that. that no, no, that's terrible. not a terrible answer. I think that will that will excite people. It, it was titillating. It was, uh, you know, no, it was yeah. it was it was good. You are a force of nature, and whatever you do, um, you will have impact. I know because you always do. Uh, so, uh, well, thank you. again, that's... you know, thank you for inspiring the young people at 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 the Institute of Politics and loved it. Just. I mean, I can't tell you. I thank you for creating it and having the vision. I, I just, I, I think what I was struck by more than anything, David, was if we could create the opportunity, there are millions of young people in this country who want to change the world. And it just, it sort of gave yeah. me, it reinforced to me um, that that is our job. Um, 
and every day we should be finding ways to give them um, a pathway into the work that they want to do. So thanks for doing that. Yeah, amen. I, I I couldn't agree more. Well, it only works because people like you are willing to to give of themselves and, and be great role models. So Cecile Richards, thank you. We will be in close touch. Sounds good. Okay, take care of yourself. Thank you for listening to The Axe Files, brought to you by the University of Chicago Institute of Politics and CNN Audio. The executive producer of the show is Emily Stanitz. The show is also produced by Miriam Annenberg, Jeff Fox, Hannah McDonald, and Allison Siegel. And special thanks to our partners at CNN, including Courtney Coop, Ashley Lusk, and Megan Marcus. For more programming from the IOP, visit politics.uchicago.edu. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.